0: Today's guest on the podcast is Ron Tite. Ron is a speaker, an author, and the CEO of a agency, church, and state. Ron was named one of the ten most creative
1: Canadians.
0: And in general, he's just a funny, good guy. And we spend a large portion of this episode talking about the speaking business, about our beliefs around leadership and storytelling and and sharing ideas in the context of the speaking business, something we both have a great deal of passion for. And uh, we also talk about Ron's new book, Think, Do, Say. And the core message within that book Uh, around helping people and organizations share their story and their message with the world. It is my great honor to bring you the wonderful, the tremendous, Ron Tite. One of the things that I thought was most interesting when I was preparing to speak to you um, was really your... your your focus on an intentional inclusion of comedy into your work. And I'm, I'm super interested in that because I, I, intrinsically I am not a funny human being. I'd love to say that I occasionally can drop a self-deprecating reference that will get a few chuckles, but like, I am not like intrinsically funny. So I'm, I'm interested in like, is that something you've always been interested in? Is it something that you've had to work at and where does that come from in injecting comedy into your work?
1: Yeah, I think there's I think two perspectives there. One is injecting the insights um, and perspective of a stand-up comedian, the business of stand-up comedy, and the craft of stand-up comedy. Because I think that's one whole area of thing that brands and leaders can follow and entrepreneurs can follow. There's great lessons there for people. And I know that world because I spent 20 years as a stand-up comedian. And um and so, you know, I was on the road and I toured and I did corporate shows and and hosted a show called Monkey Toast right up until um just a year and a half ago, I guess, um, uh before or two years ago, I guess, before we had our son. And uh so I've been involved in comedy and I know that world really well. This the second part is, you know, is the inclusion of humor into material, into speeches, into writing, you know? Um, and I think there's, there's two reasons. One is that comes naturally, that's how I see the world. I see the world, I'm always thinking of like, what is funny about this situation? What is the unique angle what other people would find humorous? And I think why I do that, and maybe why I have an entrepreneur's brain, is that if you, if you see a, a toothbrush just as a toothbrush, and you only see it that way, and it's only you only use it for brushing your teeth. That is kind of a metaphor to how most people see the problems in business. <laughs> it's like, we've always done it this way. This is the only way you can solve that problem. You know, that's it. And the second you can look at it from a humorous per- perspective, you're actually showing somebody that's like, I know you only see it from this angle, but what if you saw it from this angle? And they go, oh, I never thought of looking at it from that angle before. And when they laugh, they prove that they got it, that they actually had the ability to see that toothbrush from a completely different angle. And so by showing them, look, you you just laughed. You proved that you can see this from another perspective. Now, now I'm going to get, I'm going to show you the perspective I really wanted you to see it from. And this is the important one. And this is the serious one. And this is the strategic one. So there's a couple of, you know, in speaking, laughter is really powerful because it's disarming for people. They they it's a great unifier for an audience who like, you got that, I got that. We're all in this together. Um, and they and you get to see it from another perspective, which is the power. So it's not the laughter that I want, but it's the silence that follows the laughter. But if I don't have the laughter first, I never get to that more poignant silence. There's also a really functional aspect there, which is I don't know if you you remember this, Ryan, but, you know, in kindergarten, when sometimes the teachers would say like, when the hand goes up, the mouth goes shut, right? And everybody repeated it. And at the end, the reason that worked was because everybody says it. And then afterwards, it stops. And if you give it a beat, there's silence. So the functional aspect of using humor in a speech is after they laugh and you let it die down, they're waiting for the next thing. And it's that you've got them. And that's when I can deliver and I can take them where I want to take them. I can go with another joke and build it even more. I can take them and be really direct. And I can be re- like really direct and say, you know, like, like why are you doing this? Is- this is- you got to read the writing on the wall here. Um, or I can be thoughtful or I can be emotional. But it's in that moment of silence that, um power within a speech and the same thing in in writing it's just i think you know um for books there's so many of us who write books and we think they're the most unique thing on the planet and the reality is they're like they're just they're just not and so we have to make them more unique and i think humor is a way to do that i just i just the trailer for my book that just came out or is just coming out I was like, I'm not going to, you know, it's thing to say when the subhead is, um, you know, how to seize attention and build trust in the busy, busy world. And that, that maybe, as a that doesn't sound so unique. So in the trailer, I didn't talk about the content of the book. I just said, finally, a business book that doesn't mention Apple, even one. And I, I just thought oh, that's an, an interesting, humorous insight that may do exactly what i What the book wants them to do, which is he's attempting and build trust
0: yeah i so, so i I want to dive into the um to, to this looking at something from so basically what I heard you say is you you people look at a toothbrush from a, a certain angle, and your point is, I really want you to come in from this angle over here, and if you were to take them right there, right to that spot, maybe there wouldn't be as much. Uh, attention given to the angle you want them to look at it from there may not be as much trust built there may not uh, be as much belief built there so what you do is open them up to the possibility that there are other options first and then you take them to the direction and walk me through that thought, pro- thought process a little bit from the psychology standpoint because that's that's really interesting to me
1: yeah it, it's you know um uh i, I will you certainly you know that you spoke about building trust and and then being open first first off and humor has a great way of doing that so one of the very first things that i will do there's two there's um two types of openings in in comedy and in speeches little people don't refer to it this way there's the cold open and there's the warm open so a cold open do you know have you heard of these terms before mm-hmm. am i just talking inside yeah. pool? no no oh, you're doing good yeah so so, so, so the, so the cold open is like Saturday Night Live. Like that opening sketch is, is literally called the cold open. And, it, and it, because it just starts, right? Like the show starts and you, and you just go right from, from, from uh, when the, the show begins. Um, and, um, and so um, the, the warm open though, is when a, a host comes out and is like, Hey everybody, how you doing? Like, Hey, it's Tuesday. What happened the other day? And so I will only use a warm open. If you look at a TEDx talk, a TEDx talk is, is a cold open, right? Like, boom, you start. So why I like to do a warm open is I use something that's funny in that warm open, something I just saw, something I just read, something that just happened in the room, something the last speaker said. And so the the if I can make something funny right out of the gate, then I obviously – could not have written before, then there's a huge amount of trust because the first thing you think is, that was kind of funny and there's no way he could have written that before. Oh, this guy's present. Like he's here. He's not calling this in. He's not reciting the same script he's done 400 times. So right out of the gate, humor builds trust. Secondly, um, it gives credibility because if I can make something funny about the breakfast they just ate, then it gives me comedic credibility because they're like that was kind of funny and he obviously hadn't written that before so he's just naturally funny so it's okay for us to laugh at the later stuff which maybe are his more rehearsed bits um and so then so you build up that trust you build credibility then you know let's say i open it with a story of whatever um and um the second they laugh i've i know that i've got them because they have seen it from that other angle and i'll actually sometimes use a line if it's the beginning of the speech i'll use a line something like but that's not why we're here like i'm that direct with it like yet you're laughing but that's not why you're here and that in that moment of silence like oh where's he going with this but they've already they're already open their minds are already open to seeing other opportunities um and um so i mean i don't know i'm not a you know, a PhD in psychology, so I don't know why that is. I think you're just, you, if you lead with the business example going, hey, you're salespeople, and the elevator pitch is dead, the line that people default to, because you haven't given them any reason to prove them that they're wrong, and they do this, and I, you know, as an agent, we, we see this in pitches. People go like this, right, they cross their arms, and they go, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've been in this business 30 years. And when someone says that in a in a visual I basically mentally pack up my things and leave I'm like all right well we lost that pitch that's because that's just somebody their heels in and going no you don't know my job you don't know what I go through trust me I've been in this business 30 years I know the elevator pitch is the only way to sell so if I can show them the sales profits from a comedic angle they're like I never thought of it that way and he's actually right it's actually pretty funny when I see it that way so I've built up the trust, I've built up the credibility. And then when I, I deliver the thing that I really want them to think, I think they just like me more and they trust me more. So they're just more open to hearing it opposed to starting with, who's this guy that our, my boss brought in to speak to us about this thing? And uh, you know, here's another Yahoo telling me I should change the way I work. So I think that's, that's really quick, cr- because I, I get it, right? Like they've been fed a bunch of bullshit, For years, by senior management, by other speakers, uh, you know, and thought leaders and whatnot, and people who just, who are removed from the reality of what they do. And I just want them to show that um, I I see it from another angle, and so can they. I'll also, uh, sorry, just to add on to that, I'll also justify it. But, you know, like, for example, many people will say, you have to embrace failure. And, and I can say that as long as I tag it with, and I know, I know, it's so easy for me to say it from the stage. It really is. But let me give you a practical, you know, and realistic impl- implication of this. And, you know, and I think so it's like because I have a business, because I'm an entrepreneur and I, I, have been, I have a number of things going on and an agency with global clients, They just—they just just trust me. I go like, I I get it. It's not—it's really easy to say. It's not as easy to do. But that only happens because I've opened them up with the comedy first. Yeah, it's—it's
0: interesting. I um. So in my own speaking career, I had to adopt a warm open. You know what, Ryan?
1: I'm just—I'm just going to shut a door here. Hold on a second. There we go. Sorry. I <laughs> hope you're editing this or if you're not, your listeners just had a three second break. <laughs> That's all right. We will. We'll probably edit that part out.
0: Um, so in my own speaking career, I had to adopt a warm open pretty quickly because I was 28 years old trying to teach insurance agents about digital marketing. And you want to talk about arms folded Sonny, you don't understand. We've done it this way for for a hundred years mentality. You know, try telling telling independent insurance agents that they should sell insurance yeah. online uh, when you look like you're about eighteen um, and you and you haven't even crossed yeah. thirty yet. So uh, early in my career, I learned, you know, if I didn't if I didn't yank these guys in quick, get them laughing, getting them thinking that I'm not here to 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 impact them, or I'm now you're to just tell them the way that things should be and that they've done it wrong, despite the fact that they're all probably millionaires for the most part, um, you know, it, it that, that went over. That was bad. I mean, I had people literally walk up to me after presentations. This is way early in my career when I just went up there and started hammering on people. And, uh, right. and I had guys walk up to me and they're like, so I make $400,000 a year. You're telling me that I'm doing something wrong? And I'm like, right. <laughs> you want to make five? No, I mean, it's like it's uh, that didn't
1: go so well. So that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> and um, well that's a great lesson, right? Like I think so many of us when we when we approach problems like that, we present our thinking as if it's the only way, yeah. instead of presenting it like it's another way you know there's a I think one of the best examples is that yellow pages still is in business, yeah, you know I think the numbers are sixty five percent of yellow pages, at least in canada sixty five percent of the yellow pages revenue still comes from the book. there are still consumers. Who look in the yellow pages, who see an ad, and who book buy, order a pizza, and so we can't flip the switch on anything. And that, if you're a four hundred thousand dollars insurance salesman and you're making four hundred thousand dollars, yeah, maybe because of your ecosystem, that's totally cool. Cool. This is not the only way to do it, but you should look at it from another perspective. And yeah. maybe eight of you will want to try that perspective because the current approach isn't working for you.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. I so I can I can testify from a lot of hard beats that, um, that, you, that connecting with them very early and kind of bringing down that wall is of the utmost importance. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I just. I've, I've, that,
1: that, that shoulder, that, that arms crossing thing is there's another great lesson there in comedy, um, which is any great comedian knows something called, you know, you never ignore the reality of the room. So if you're in a comedy club and somebody yells out, you suck. Everybody heard it everybody heard it and it's your show and so you have to address that person you have to call it out and you have to respond and get in, and interact so when i see somebody in a room with their arms folded going who the deep is this guy what's he saying i go straight for them
0: yeah
1: and i go you're not buying it are you i know i see the look on your face and then they they will open up a little bit because now that i've called them out and i I will consciously then look to that person, and because I think the first thing I need them to do is I just I need them to like me. That's it. Um, So I can't ignore the reality that there are people who think it's bullshit, and I'm go I go to those people and I um I I get them on side right away. There's in comedy there's something called the there's an active heckler and a passive heckler, and the active heckler is the person who says you suck. And in a business meeting, there is the active heckler, which says, I agree with your budget forecasts, or I disagree with your budget forecasts, and here's why. And you can engage that person, and you know what they, they don't like the line item that's been associated for distribution, you can debate that and anything else. In comedy and in business, the far more dangerous heckler is the passive heckler. The passive heckler in a comedy club is the person who doesn't even know you're on stage. They're consumed with their phone. They're talking to their buddies. They got something else. They don't even, they, not that they, they don't like what you're talking about. They don't even know you're there. And in business, the passive heckler is the person who doesn't say anything in the meeting and then kills your idea in the hallway. And in both cases, the first thing you need to do is get them paying attention. They, you need them at least, like they, they can disagree with you, but they first have to hear what you're saying and have to understand what you're saying. So in a comedy club, you, I would you know, walk right up to the person who's standing beside them so that they know that I'm right there. Yeah. Or I would, I would point to them and make a comment that would get them listening. In a business meeting, you go, hey, Mary, uh, you haven't said what you think of this proposal. And you get Mary on the record so that Mary can, and even if she disagrees with it, at least she's on the record for what she disagrees with and allowing you the opportunity to change it or fix it or address her concerns.
0: Yeah, I, um, I used to... Too. I, I did, I had a little bit when I knew that I knew uh, that I, we used to do early when I could tell I had either like a early morning audience or an audience right after lunch when people had kind of maybe been away from their phones and we're now trying, we're going to check during my session um, that I would do about what it looks like when you stick your phone in your crotch and you start playing with your phone because you're trying to hide it from me under the table. So I had like this little, little thing that little, I would right. do, a little sketch and I'd have the phone down on my crotch uh, and I'd be like, I don't, you know, I I had different versions of it, but like by attacking that, like, and I would just say just pull it right out and like hold it up in the air and just text. Like, I don't care. At least I know what you're doing. You <laughs> know what I mean? Like it's all good. Yeah. That's Everybody's awesome. He was texting and, um, and, uh, and, but again, it took me a long time to get to that point where I was willing to do that. I guess just tr- uh, very tactically I'm interested in like what size audience would become too big to do crowd work like that. Like if you're, if you're- Hundred people, two hundred people are you still going to move out into the crowd obviously you're if you get into the thousands it's it's you know it's probably more than you can really handle but um obviously if you're in i think sometimes it's almost even more difficult to do it if it's ten people because it's so intimate, and uh I've just seen that from both directions. I'm just interested in your take
1: yeah i'll do um uh, I think it's more about the, the the physical makeup of the room for me not. Because, like, I just did a, a speech on Monday for, I think it was 650 or 700 people, and I totally did crowd work. I yeah. wandered right in. Um, I didn't care. Um, um, and so if it's a massive room um, and the stage is elevated a little bit, like sometimes it's just physically not, pop, not possible to leave the stage, go into the crowd, and get back on stage in a, in a way where you're not ripping your pants or something. Um, I think if, it, if it's possible, I think because even if 1,000 people plus 2,000, 3,000 people, um, you know, I've done 1,000 people where I went into the crowd. And the reason you can do that is because you're typically an iMac. Like, you're, you're actually – they're actually not watching you on stage at all. Wa- the whole crowd is watching you on the video screen. Yeah. And as long as the camera can follow you into the room. And so if you know, sometimes look at the crew heads up, like, hey, I might go into the crowd so will be prepared with the lights so you can pick it up on camera. Um, and then and then if I'm, a, if I'm talking to somebody in the room, um, like I actually – um I came up with a bit where I was going to go into the room, and it was like before the speech started, and I saw that there was a guy that was really tall, and I the the bit was something about me being short or whatever it was. I literally went to the camera guy and i said i 'm going to do this thing i 'm going to go in and I think the visual of me standing beside this guy who's like six nine is really funny, so if you can just frame the shot near the top. So you actually cut his head off. Like, I think that's really funny. If he's so tall, he's out of the frame. And I, and so in doing that, I turned and faced the God because I knew where the camera was. And so that I was looking at the camera. So you have to act like a TV, uh, like an anchor. You have to deliver to the camera in a really large room because that's where most people are, are watching you. They're watching you on screen. Yeah. What I love about the size of a room like that, too, when you're on iMag, is that, Everybody thinks like, oh, 4,000, 5,000 people, you need to play it really big. No, it's the exact opposite. Yeah, You play it really, really small because everyone's watching you on camera. So the only thing they see, they don't see the stage. They only see you from the waist up. Yeah, so you can cock like an eyebrow. Wide. Yeah, you can cock an eyebrow and somebody in the last row, will they will see it. So it's such a joy to perform to a room that size because you can go, you can actually play it really, really intimately. There's a great line from Bill Clinton um, when Elvis Costello asked him on Elvis Costello's show, what did Bill Clinton learn from jazz, from playing jazz that he applied to politics? And the line was, yeah, I learned that when you're playing to one, we play like you're playing to a million. And when you're playing to a million, you play like you're playing to one, and I think that's so true for speaking. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's really good. That's really really good. It's it's funny, you know. Um, when I think a lot of people who don't speak professionally or or in any capacity like that, um, how versatile you have to be in order to consistently perform. Um, I had back to back shows where um, I had a four hundred person audience where the mics went out and I had to yell to them and talk about like being animated. I mean, literally I had to project over 400 people for almost 60 minutes. There was no audio. I mean, or that way they just wouldn't have been able to hear me. And to an IMAG, uh, about, it was about 700 people, but they had the IMAGs. and it's and now all of a sudden you're like bringing yourself all the way back in. Now it was a dream that it was the screaming one first and the IMAG one second. Cause then I, I could be, I could save my voice a little on the second, but, uh, it was, um, it was really interesting. Right. And I think, you know, I'm hearing you talk about how before you go on stage, you're setting up, you're, you know, you're scanning the crowd, you're finding the guy who's tall so you can set the shot and you're talking to the crew and to perform really well. It's, it's these details in my opinion, like as I got into my career and, and though I've kind of had to put it on pause for a while, as I've taken the, the CEO job here at metabolic, um, you know, I, I probably, I, you know, I got paid to speak for about 10 years and it wasn't until maybe the latter third of my career that I really started to understand, yes, you your the content is important, but the content from you to, you know, any, any, a bunch of people, you know, it's, it's, you know, unique points, but the content is the content. And then it's, it's the little details that you're discussing. You know, you're not saying, well, I got this great thing in the middle where I talk about content marketing. You know, you're saying, Hey, there's this little detail where I want to stand next to this guy and cut his head out. And it's, I feel like far too often, we get so consumed in the, 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 the thing that we forget about all the edges and where the, the edges are where things are really interesting. Those little details on the edges are what make me, I, I think what really define our differences when we present our product. And I feel like over the course of my career, speaking is where I've seen that stand out more than in other aspects of my life, but I, I think it transcends
1: yeah i think i think you know um, mistakes give us the opportunity to to do that um and this is the difference i think between somebody who gets it and somebody who doesn't so somebody who gets it goes the mics went out like when you told me that the mics went out in front of how many people was it about 400. 400 so 400 people the first thing in my brain was Oh, what an opportunity! Yeah, it was fun, right? Like, like oh wow, because the first thing the group is going to say is the mics went out, and that dude still killed it. Yeah, and he used that to do a thing, and it became, but then it becomes the thing to talk about. So I, I was doing a speech in um, in Niagara Falls, and to I don't know eight hundred people or something like that, and I came out and realized. That, after the first 15 minutes, my fly was completely down, <laughs> fully zipper, boxer underwear exposed, kind of you know thing. And um some people who maybe w- who don't speak that often would would freak out and they they'd lose their mind, and they all nervous and flustered, and they can't believe they did it. The first thing in my brain was, "Oh, this is going to be good."
0: yeah, um,
1: and so I just embraced it, and I went to the front row. And I said, has my fly been down the whole time? And everyone in the front row was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, Your your job as the front row is that if a speaker comes out and their zippers down, you you tell them. And 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 then I just went off and just improvised some bits of what the rest of the audience was thinking like. I'd love to understand what he's talking about, but I can't move my eyes from this gaping void in his crotch, you know, like, <laughs> and I think it's just such a great opportunity. Every mistake, everything that that goes wrong is such an opportunity to kill it even more yeah. than the crowd would ever expect you to. Yeah.
0: I, I, I did. It's so funny. I, uh, I love these stories. I don't get to speak to speakers as much as I should, but, uh, um I had the night before I carry zit cream, cream. With me. if you get a zit you know what I mean like you want to try to relegate it as much you know it's just yep. a red thing on your face so the, so the night before I had put or whatever I would put some uh, it was an afternoon thing so the morning I'd put some zit cream right here just to kind of like have something go away just so it's not like a big red flashing light and then I figured I just before I left the room I'd wipe it off well Nope. I completely forgot to do that. So I have this big splotch right here of white stuff and no one says a word to me. I mean, I do, I go out, I'm I'm talking to people, I'm getting set up with the crew. I'm getting mic'd up. I'm talking to them about, you know, what I'm going to do when I'm on stage. I mean, the whole thing is like an hour's worth of pre-work, probably 25 different people speaking face to face with me. No one says a word about this big white splotch That's right here. So finally I turn. I I have the, I, I did this like, I made my point and the crowd reacts and I kind of turn a little, I kind of show them maybe my back just a little second to give them like a breather. And I look and like the, they had a still that they had taken on the iMeg like they hadn't whatever. I could see that I had the zit cream. Let's just put it that way. Like, or it was like, no, it was like a Twitter thing or something I could see right here. So I stop and I come back and um, I asked, uh, I asked the audience, I was like, who, do any of the women in the audience or men, you know, have a, have a compact, have one of those compacts with a mirror? So then they give me the compact and I, I'm doing this whole thing where I'm washing it off and I'm licking my finger and I'm going like, and I'm talking to them about whatever. I can't even remember what I was talking to them about at the time. But like that, that took a, you know, that took this presentation, which was, you know, I mean, I, I would love to say good. And then everyone's like, asking me what you know busting my chops the rest of the time now we're like bros right the whole audience is bros because now they're like what kind of zit cream is it how many zits do you get why are you getting zits right, right right 40 you know what i mean like all the you know all this stuff but all but what they're also doing and this is just to reiterate and maybe just for people who don't speak at home and are kind of following along still um what it did was it made that their, their, it's almost like it's it 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 uh, unhardens their brain and softens their brain, it becomes very porous at that point. They're like, now that you've like let your guard all the way down, like with your fly thing, everything you said after that, yeah. I bet they were way, way more receptive to And I bet they also retained it. They retained it more. Um, and, and that's what I found And the biggest, like, I don't want to call them mistakes, but like, you know, things happen whenever there's something like that, an instance, uh, uh, a situation, Everything after that seems to really stick in the in the audience's brain afterwards. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah. 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 It's an opportunity for you to show that you're a pro, I think. Yeah. yeah. And you
0: and the worst thing you can do is is fall apart, I think. So all right, well, we've talked about mm-hmm. I could talk about speaking. I can talk about speaking all day. It's literally <laughs> my favorite thing in 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 business to do. Um uh but I, there's some things with your with your book and, and some of your other work. Um, that I wanted to just just some questions that I that I found that I wanted to I wanted to talk through with sure. you you're kind of in the second half of our show so um, in your um, in your first book here um, right I'm trying to find where I want to go first so no, everyone's an artist in, in everyone's an artist um, you had a line I think it's everyone is, is an artist you had a line um, people no longer vote with their wallet, they vote with their time. And, and I'm assuming you also mean their their attention as well, or, or at least if that's part of it. And if it's not, please correct me. Um, it I is yeah. I would really love for you to dive into that a little bit because I, I don't I don't think I think there are a lot of people who if you say that to them, they're like, Oh yeah, that makes sense, but they're not really grabbing hold of it and 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 embracing the the power in that in that statement. And I'd just like you to dive into that a
1: little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, before the transactions were pretty, were pretty easy, right? I mean, you, you, you didn't have to vote. You didn't have to choose to spend time with things. There, there wasn't much selection. So you, you didn't choose to watch commercials. You didn't choose to look at ads. You were fed them. And based on that ad, then you chose with your wallet. You said, I vote. For Toyota uh, or I vote for Lexus or whatever, um, which I think are part of the same parent kind of company but anyhow. Um so then, when um, the media landscape completely changed, and people have talked about this kind of bad nausea, but n- now i don't I don't have to watch that I mean whether it's you know uh, uh, software plugins that allows me to you know have any ads or whether i'm uh, Um, uh, skipping ads, or whether I'm PVRing stuff, whether I'm choosing to go to cable or to streaming services that have no ads. So now I get to choose which things I spend my time with. And in order to get to the point where I have to decide what my wallet is going to purchase, I first have to vote with, I would like to pay attention to this message. I would like to seek out this message. I would like to choose to watch this message. And, you know, people think that, you know, that skip ad button in the beginning of pre-roll, like when you like account is down, like you can skip this ad in five, four, three, two, one. What typically happens, I don't I do this, I'm sure you do, we see that that come up and we're like, how fast can I, is it, is it, five, is it down to zero yet? Can I skip it now, can I skip it now? We've got our mouse hovering over the little part where we know it's gonna say skip out and we can click right there. And so the second it hits zero, we're clicking to get out of that. And people think that's just a that's just a mechanic or a tactic within pre-roll, but it's not. This is skip ad exists in every piece of business communication you get on stage you do a speech there's somebody going can i skip this now can i skip this now you send a pitch slap email on linkedin they're going skip 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 they're you know you're putting um content in front of them that you say is really great you're putting a white paper in front of them. all that shit every single last bit of it whether and and i think people are chasing tactics And they're going, I hear that Facebook is really great, so we need to invest some of our money into Facebook ads. No. I mean, yes, sure, fine. But if you don't look at the stuff you're putting on the platform and say, is this good enough and interesting enough and relevant enough and compelling enough where someone would choose or would seek it out, then they're just going to go skip ad, skip ad, skip ad. And, And... you know, there's people like, "Well, oh, our big strategy for the years we're going to now start to invest in Instagram Stories." Nothing makes my my blood boil faster than that, N- not because the platform or the the media choice isn't appropriate, but because more focus has been put into the distribution mechanism than into maintaining the quality of the thing that you are distributing. Because that's the hard and part. You can't win the. Well, it's the hard part, it's the risky part, right? It's it's the part you you, I mean, it's pretty easy to go and look at a media plan and go, yeah, those numbers make sense, I like the, the CPMs on that, and checks out, and sure, buy, you know, spend two million in that area. Um, it's another thing to go, should it be blue or should it be red, I don't know, let's, let's debate this. And I think it's so much easier to say we're gonna try something new to approve a media plan than it is, or a tactic, than it is to say, do we really want to change the tone of our language? Do we really want to change the messaging? Do we really want to change the art direction? And um, that's the part that wins the battle for time in in conjunction with where it is.
0: Yeah, this this actually is a perfect segue into something that I was uh, – I found an interview that you did. And in that interview, you said, you know, people have forgotten how to play the long game. And this is uh, in context to your new book, Think, Do, Say. Uh, everyone who's listening, why don't have – how you get a hold of Ron, how you find him, and links to his, his website and his books and stuff will all be in the show notes. Or you just Google Think Do Say or go to Amazon, you'll find it. Um, coming out in October, which this should be released before then. So uh, pre-order yeah, when cool. you can. Um, people have forgotten how to play the long game, and we're chasing short-term tactics. We're trying to game the system we've lost the organic pursuit of success. There's two things in there that I that, that resonated with me. Um, one, I completely agree with your short-term tactics thing. That's like a psychosis that many people have. But the idea of, of I, guess, I guess, for people to have forgotten how to play the long game, there there's, feels like there's an assumption that at some point they were playing the long game. And I'm interested in your take on that. And then I really want to know, this idea of the organic pursuit of success, what you, what you kind of mean by that statement. I, I, I like it. I just, I'm I'm super interested in it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, your first question of the long game, have they forgotten? I think so. And, but I think you raised a good point and a good insight. I don't know whether they've forgotten or whether the, I don't know. I just, I, I, whether they just refuse to do it and maybe they always did, but it's more, it's more obvious now, but they there, because everything is new, um, you know. Whether it's Moore's law that it's an eighteen-month time frame for computing power, or whether it's just the, the natural um, uh, life cycle of platforms and tactics, you know, I, it'd be an interesting thing actually. To, is there a Moore's law for uh, for advertising tactics that every 18, eighteen months seconds. there's gonna be a new platform?
0: Yeah, Moore's yeah, law yeah. for advertising is eighteen seconds.
1: Yeah. So, so, I think um you know it's because of our previous point that, that it's really easy to do that It's like we're just going to play the short game, and so within uh, advertising you know there's uh, there's either acquisition or there's retention, and we know that when you want to play the short game, when you want to meet those quarterly numbers and you need to drive call response or click response or whatever, there are always tactics that you can do. You can do a buy one, get one. You can do a price savings. You can do a never, you know, it's it's a sales event. You can do all those things that dial up the urgency and you do it at the cost of long-term brand affiliation. And you get your little bump in calls. And the problem is that stuff is like crack because you get a little bump and you go, I just want another bump, I just want another bump, I just want another bump. But the bumps are getting harder and harder and harder to get, just as, and I don't, I've never done crack, but I don't know, <laughs> I'm assuming this happens, that, that the crack starts to wear off faster and faster, right? Um, but so I think that's what happens, is that you don't play the long game. And so you just chase these short-term things, and you're in this constant panic cycle of new things, new things, new things, because you need the short-term tactics to pay off because you've never invested in the long-term tactics. And there's no greater difference in this than the world between Apple and Dell. And I used to, you know, I was the creative director on Dell for many years. You know, uh, Apple will never do a, a price reduction. You've never seen that ad. They have focused on building products, and I hate using Apple as the example, but... Um, but you know, they would never do that. Whereas Dell, we looked at the short term numbers and then we would look at the ad and go, that ad delivered so many calls or a cost per click at $75 and or at twelve dollars, whatever. And how do we do that again? It was like, oh, we reduced the price, we made the computer bigger, and we just started chasing those tactics. And they became more and more difficult. So that's what I mean by the long game. The organic pursuit of success is that advertising and I don't remember who said this, somebody, that advertising is a tax. It's just a tax on, on the stupid or it's a tax on shitty products or it's a tax on services that, that aren't as good as they say. And, and that if you organically build a product, that is phenomenal. If you organically develop customer service over time, that you hone and you perfect and you deliver it and you never stop. You're just trying to make it better and better and better. Word gets around. It just it just does, and people trust it. And then when you lead with messaging, people trust your messaging because they know you put so much time into the product. And, you know, I, I see this with speakers a lot where people are like, you know, I, I'm not getting the speaking gigs, so I need to develop the website. I need to change my speaker reel. I need to do all these things. And my first question is, did you look at the product? Maybe it's not that you're not tweeting relevant stuff but it's that the product sucks. Yeah. That's why you're not getting booked. So double down and fix the product first because in speaking, gigs get you gigs. And the only way to do that is to kill it on stage. And this every second you're not focused on improving your product, on your research, on your preparation, on your customization, Every second you're not doing that and doing those other things means you're weakening the product. And so I think and that, but that has to happen organically. That takes time, that takes patience, that takes flexibility, that takes a little bit of failure, all those things. And if you just make it better every single time, um, then you know that will happen. I, I do something in speaking where some people go like, I've got a whole new speech. And I'm like, Really? You sat down and you wrote an hour of new material, and now you're going to deliver it for the first time at a conference? That's, this is my world of comedy. Nobody does that. Nobody writes an hour of comedy and then performs it for HBO in the first take. No way. Does not. What they do is they develop bits along the way, and they'll do old bits, old bits, old bits. Here's a new bit that I'm working on selfishly, and then and pull it back. And over time, the speech changes over the, in the course of a 12-month period, opposed to doing the same speech for 12 months, stopping writing an entirely new speech in one sitting, and then perfecting it. That's not any way to do it. It's organic. It happens every single time out, every single day.
0: You know, the, some of the best speaking advice that I ever got, and I think this applies to just about any business, was uh, modulizing your bits. I think a lot of times we think of presentations or speeches or whatever you want to call what we do on stage as this the whole thing is the thing. And uh, actually, it was uh, our uh, uh, shared friend, Marcus Sheridan, who sat me down. He, he followed me at a, at a gig one time. And he said, he said, which one of those pieces did you swap in or out for this particular for this particular event? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he's and he's like, What I'll do is I have nine modules. And if it's a 30 minute presentation, I'll take three of those modules. And if it's an hour, maybe I'll take be able to fit seven in and then I'll do another hour the next day and swap two of them out and two of them in and and and, and then I can build a new module. And it's a whole new speech because I, by adding one new module or just rearranging the modules I've added. And um, I think both in, in speaking uh, that, that, that completely changed my career when I did that, that that was a game changer for me because I became, I could be laser focused on one part of this, the presentation that I felt wasn't working instead of trying to rework the whole presentation every time, which And saying it back to you seems silly that I thought that way, but until he had shared that with me, I had never thought about it. And I think the same thing goes on with our business, right? Like we, we think, well, my, this isn't working. So I have to flip this thing over. And now instead of tweeting, I'm going to go Instagram stories and I'm going to be this thing. And, um, I'm going to start doing SEO work or whatever the heck people want to do and whatever your job is. And instead it's just, what is the one little piece that isn't working? Let's spend some time and really fix that piece and let everything else be what it is. Uh, it, it that was a game changer for me that was an absolute game changer and it has transcended um even now that uh, my my work in life is more of just a, as an executive than it is uh, a speaker um it's i apply it to what i do every day here and, and it it's it's huge
1: yeah i think and there's another way to look at that right that's that um so i t- take the same approach but i also add a layer to it both in leadership and in speaking. So so I am a certain type of leader with our team here at the agency. And the reason I am that type of leader is because of the successes and failures I've had in 25 years or whatever in this business. And so all those other people that I led or that I followed or whatever, all those other people subsidized the leadership that I now have. And so, the current people, just as on stage, every audience where I tried out a new thing that maybe didn't work, those audience subsidized the delivery of the great material that the people get to hear today. And so what are they doing for the next group? What are they doing to pay it forward? What are the current team doing to subsidize the leadership traits that I'm going to have for the next generation of people that I will lead? And that is a, that is a very selfish thing, and I don't communicate it that way, But I know in speaking that if I do 95% of the speech, which is gold material, and this is great stuff, and they love it, and it's relevant, and it's funny, and everything that's insightful, then there's 5% that I don't know how it's going to go. Because I'm exploring new things, and it may suck. And it's okay, because 95% of it is gold. And the 5% that sucks, A, they don't really notice, uh, but B, I think that's okay because that's them paying it forward to the next group because I'm going to find something in the stuff that I think might suck that doesn't. And that becomes another piece which is more relevant or more interesting for a future audience. So, uh, you know, and and the team here, we're going to try some things out from a process standpoint, from an innovation standpoint, whatever. We're going to try new Software you know, we're on Slack now, and this may suck, but let's just try this out. That's them subsidizing the leadership traits for future generations. Yeah, if Slack doesn't suck; it's
0: amazing. Yeah, no, I'm well with you on that point as well. I, I will say that the way I, I kind of look at it um, is, you know, you, you had talked about someone taking a whole new hour and bringing it out to a to a paid gig, uh, and that to me shows almost a lack of respect for that audience because. You, you 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 you're not delivering material to them that you know guaranteed is going to hit I think that delivering yeah. something over and over and over and over and over again the exact same way also shows a lack of respect for the audience because it says I'm not willing to evolve my material um, mm-hmm. as, the, as the world changes and I think mm-hmm. what you just described to me is the sweet spot whether it's 90% or 98% or some percentage of your material being new says, look, I'm gonna make sure that you get what you paid for in either the time or the money that it took for you to sit in the seat that you're in. But I'm gonna have enough respect to you for you to say, I'm gonna give you something a little new. And there's a chance it's gonna be terrible, and that's just kind of the price we pay, but I'm gonna have enough respect to both give you something worthwhile and give you something a little different too and I think that speaks to, to your process about the warm open and uh, what it shows sure. me is that and I hope people listening at home take away from this is that res- I, I think there as someone delivering you whether it's speaking or if you're the leader or whatever having respect for the people for the for the audience it will call them clients call them whatever you want to call them is of the utmost importance we can't and respect for them if we're not willing to give it first. And that, to me, is the thing. When I see leaders fall apart, when I see speakers fall apart, um, salespeople, marketers, it's that they don't have the 180-degree uh, the respect. They, they want it for themselves. Look at this great piece of content that I created. Why don't you Why don't you sign up for my newsletter? or Why aren't you sharing it? Or why aren't you hiring me? And, and you can tell when you really dig into it. What's missing isn't the quality of the work. It's not the insights. It's the fact that that work didn't display respect back to the audience in which you were providing it to them. And, um, I think the way that you described that was spot on.
1: Yeah, I think too, I think that people, and we see this with clients, right, as well, um, or with leading people, um, that you actually, you think you want to show respect by claiming that you know more than you do <laughs> and in speech form, you go in and you're like, "So this is your sales process, you know," and you try and use their terms and and all that kind of stuff, opposed to never ignoring the reality of the room that you're an outside perspective, and just going and go like, "I actually don't know what you go through on a daily basis. I maybe have an idea. I have a superficial understanding of what you do, but there are things I'm never going to appreciate." that you have to deal with. Why? Because I'm an outsider. And there's some value in having an outsider. And that's why not all my things are going to be exactly as what they are for you in your daily life. For us as, a, as consultants to our clients, you know, we're the agency um, for Walmart Canada, for the social and digital agency for Walmart Canada. I, I, I actually don't know. I can't appreciate what somebody working in the camera department, uh, you know, at the Dufferin Mall in Toronto, the Dufferin Mall, Walmart, goes to on a daily basis. And I'm never going to have that insight. And so I shouldn't sell my ideas as if I'm the all-knowing or we are the all-knowing organization that does. But we should frame our perspectives as saying, this is an outside perspective. And you need that outside perspective. But this is your responsibility to call us on it or to agree, disagree, or to add some color to it so that we get it Better, but there's this belief of like they don't know my business. No, that's the whole point of hiring an outside body is we don't know your business. We can understand your business, but we'll never know your business to the extent that you know your business, and that's exactly why you hire us, guys.
0: if you are looking for a speaker, I highly recommend Ron. I am part of one of the foremost speaking Facebook groups. How I ever got invited into this group, I don't know. I feel, <laughs> I feel it has been a generous gift to just voyeur it most times. I don't even uh, – I, I, I do add occasionally to the conversations, but mostly I just read the insights of tremendous people. Ron is one of them who consistently shares his own uh, thoughts and beliefs and experiences with that group. I find it incredibly valuable, and I can tell you that if you're looking for a speaker, you cannot miss – uh, with Ron. Um, also, his book, uh, Think, Do, Say, is coming out in October. Make sure you pre order it. Ron, it's been an incredible pleasure. Where can people, like, the best place to get at you if they're just looking for more information?
1: Yeah, it's just Ron Tite everywhere. It's just R O N T I T E. Twitter, at Ron Tite. You know, Instagram, at RonTite, uh, Um, And the agency is churchstate.co. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks everybody for listening. I really appreciate uh We are in a battle for time and uh, thanks to all your listeners for choosing to spend it with us. Well said.